0: Grammar Girl here. This week, I have a quick and dirty tip about the difference between the words fictional and fictitious, a meaty middle about why English has so many silent letters, and a tidbit about how the word adult is related to adolescent, but not to the word adultery. It's some pretty interesting etymology. This first quick and dirty tip is from my book 101 Misused Words You'll Never Confuse Again. Which you can find where all fine books are sold if you'd like to hold it in your very own hands or on your very own e reader. Fictional and fictitious are both adjectives that mean roughly made up or invented. The difference between the two is how they're typically used rather than what they mean. Fictional is usually used to describe something in literature, such as a fictional character or a fictional story. Here's an example from the book Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Quote, if you practice being fictional for a while, you'll understand that fictional characters are sometimes more real than people with bodies and heartbeats. Unquote. Fictitious is usually used to describe a lie or an invention that happens in real life. Here's an example from the book Mark Twain in Eruption sane and intelligent human beings carefully and cautiously and diligently conceal their private real opinions from the world and give out fictitious ones in their stead for general consumption unquote. so fictitious tends to refer to something that's a lie or invention in real life and fictional tends to refer to the made up things in literature and that was your quick and dirty tip Before we get to the meaty middle about silent letters, there's Greek, there's French, there's spelling reform. It's time to tell you about our sponsor this week, edX. They are revolutionizing the education world. Up till now, quality education or even higher education seemed out of reach to many people. But now there's edX, an online learning destination where you can take fascinating free courses from the world's best universities edX was founded by Harvard and MIT in 2012, with the mission of increasing access to high-quality education for all. Today, edX has more than 500 courses from more than 80 universities and institutions. You can take fun classes such as The Rise of Superheroes from the Smithsonian Institute and The World of Wine from the University of Adelaide, And you can take serious classes, such as Introduction to Computer Science from Harvard and Principles of Economics from Caltech. If you want to learn new skills to advance your career and get the in-demand jobs, then edX is for you because even though all the classes are free, after you finish a class, you can buy a certificate of achievement signed by the instructor with the institution logo to verify your achievement and increase your job prospects. As I was looking for classes to recommend to you, I found at least 30 that I would love to take, so if my podcast stops coming out, you'll know that I fell into the world of edX courses and couldn't stop watching. After all, they're free, so check it out. And so they know I sent you, please go to edX.org gg. Start at edX.org gg. Thank you. And now on to silent letters. The English spelling system is famous for not making sense. The phonetic ideal of having each letter represent exactly one sound and each sound represented by exactly one letter is impossible when English has about 45 sounds or phonemes and only 26 letters to represent them. But more than that, any language that's been written for a long enough time will have spellings that haven't caught up with modern pronunciations, because pronunciations change. English has been written for about 1,300 years, which is plenty of time for these mismatches to accumulate. One of the more frustrating signs of these spelling mismatches is English's abundance of silent letters. With a conservative definition of silent letter, more than half of the letters of our alphabet are silent in at least some words. Today, we'll find out the stories behind some of these silent letters. We're mostly going to talk about silent consonant letters, but we can't talk about silent letters without acknowledging the most famous silent letter in English, silent E. Some silent letters appear in just a few words, but silent E appears so regularly that there's even a spelling rule about it. A silent E at the end of a word makes the preceding vowel long. A long vowel sounds like its name, like the A in the word name, and a short vowel sounds weaker, like the A in the word car. Long A, short A. According to the Cambridge Encyclopedia of the English Language by David Crystal, this rule has its origins in the early part of the Middle English period, in other words, in the 11th century. In those days, English used suffixes much more than it does now to show if a word was singular or plural, or if it was being used as the subject of a sentence or an object. For example, hus, spelled h-u-s, meant just house. But husa, spelled h-u-s-e, meant to a house. However, in the Middle English period, that final a uh sound got dropped completely so that whether the word was spelled h-u-s, or H-U-S-E, it was pronounced hoose. Still, that didn't stop people from writing that final E. As Crystal writes, quote, Although the final a uh sound disappeared, the E spelling remained, and it gradually came to be used to show that the preceding vowel was long. This is the origin of the modern spelling rule about silent E, in such words such as name and rose, unquote. Many silent consonant letters represent consonants that were actually pronounced at one time, but fell victim to changing phonotactic rules. What's a phonotactic rule? It's a rule that describes the way sounds can be arranged in the words of a language. For example, one phonotactic rule of present-day English is that you don't have a long U sound before the NG sound. So although ring, rang, and rung are all good English words, rung, R-O-O-N-G, is not only not an English word, it's not even a possible English word. One phonotactic rule that changed has to do with where you can have an H sound. Say the word hug. It begins with the H sound, right? Now say the word huge. What sound does it begin with? H again? Well, yes and no. It's true that we hear it as an H, but it's not the same kind of H that we have in hug. That H is made by just letting air flow past your vocal cords down in your neck. The H in huge, though, is made by raising the body of your tongue up close to your palate and forcing air through that constriction. Say them again, hug, and huge, and notice how your mouth is formed and where the air goes. In present-day English, we only pronounce H at the beginnings of words. But in Old English, the H pronounced with your tongue close to your palate could also appear in the middle of a word, or at the end. It was spelled as an H in Old English, and as GH in Middle English. And even after English speakers stopped pronouncing those palatal Hs, The spelling remained. We know it today as the silent GH in words such as thought, night, and through. Phonotactic rules also deal with consonant clusters. And in English, these rules are pretty picky. With 23 consonant sounds, more than 500 consonant clusters are possible. But English uses only about 40 and some of those appear only in proper nouns, such as Gwen, or in borrowed words, such as Schlepp. But in the past, English used to have quite a few more consonant clusters than it does now. One cluster that has disappeared is KN, which gives us the silent K in words such as knife, knee, and knowledge. Knife, for example, used to be pronounced kanif. Another long-lost cluster is W-R, which has given way to the silent W in words such as wrong, wreath, and wrestle. Yet another consonant cluster that English doesn't have anymore is G-N, which is the source of the silent G in words such as gnaw, gnat, and gnarly. The word gnome also comes to mind when you think of the silent G, but that's not from Old English. It's from Greek which brings us to another source of silent letters. Classical Greek allowed several other consonant clusters that violate modern English phonotactic rules. As a result, Greek borrowings that begin with these clusters get simplified by losing that first consonant. In addition to the GN cluster of gnome in Gnostic, Greek has several clusters beginning with P. The cluster PN appears in pneumonia, and P.S. in words such as psalm and psychiatry. The cluster P.T. shows up in the root P.T.E.R., which means wing in words such as pterodactyl. This word root P.T.E.R. brings us to the phenomenon of silent letters that are magically revealed in the right phonetic situations. Notice that we pronounce that P with no problem at all when it has a vowel before it. In words such as helicopter, and Lepidoptera, the scientific name for the Order of Butterflies. What's happened is that the PT cluster has been split apart. The P ends up at the end of a syllable, cop or dop, to be specific, and the T ends up at the beginning of the syllable, ter, T-E-R. That same thing happens with the Greek root M-N-E-M, meaning mind. The M is silent in mnemonic but in the word amnesia, it gets pronounced as the end of the syllable am, a-m, at the beginning of amnesia. All the clusters we've talked about so far come at the beginning of a word, but there are also phonotactic rules about clusters coming at the end of a word. The word hymn, as in a hymn that you sing at church, has a silent n at the end of it, but like the disappearing, reappearing p and m, it gets revealed in the right phonetic environment in this case, when it's followed by a vowel in the word hymnal. Latin provides a few of these now-you-hear-them-now-you-don't ends too, in words such as condemn and condemnation. In the original Latin and Greek, these words had suffixes following those consonant letters, but those suffixes got deleted when the words entered English, leaving a phonotactically unacceptable cluster at the ends of the words. Thus, giving us the silent n at the end. Some letters are silent in English words because we borrow the words from another language, and they're silent in that language too. I'm looking at you, French. How many of you, like me, went for years hearing the word rendezvous spoken and not realizing it was the same word as rendezvous that you'd read in books? The rendez and the vous have a silent z and s, respectively because that's how they're pronounced in French. The same goes for the silent P and silent T in coup d'etat, and the silent D and silent X in Grand Prix. Why does French have so many silent final consonant letters? Just as in English, the spellings have been fixed for a long time and haven't changed with the language's pronunciation. As for why French speakers stopped pronouncing those final consonants in so many words, That's a question for the historical linguists. In case you're curious, though, the name for the deletion of sounds from the end of a word is Apocope, A-P-O-C-O-P-E, so you can look it up if you want to know more. By the way, watch out when you're pronouncing French words, because not all of its final consonant letters are silent. Furthermore, if a French word ends with a consonant followed by an E, you do pronounce that consonant. So a complete meal at a restaurant that's served at a fixed price is a prefix meal. Because pre is spelled P-R-I-X, while fix is spelled F-I-X-E. It's not a pre-fee meal, as I've heard some servers call it. And the finishing touch on a job is the coup de grace, because grace is spelled G-R-A-C-E. It's not coup de gras, which literally means a strike of fat. The last group of silent letters we'll talk about came from some misguided spelling reforms. We've been talking about how silent letters can result from not removing a letter that represents a sound that isn't pronounced. However, in some cases, a silent letter has come from putting in a letter for a sound that isn't pronounced. Now, why would anyone do such a thing? As is often the case, someone had good intentions. In his book The Fight for English from 2006, David Crystal explains that during the Renaissance, some spelling reformers thought it would be a good idea to insert letters to make a word's origin clear. This is where the silent B in debt comes from. At the time, the word was spelled without a B, but reformers began to insert it to show its relation to the Latin source, Debitum. Crystal writes that this tinkering also resulted in the silent S in island, because the reformers were sure that this word came from the Latin word for island, insula, but the joke was on them because it didn't. Crystal concludes quote, There are many more such cases. Some people nowadays find it hard to understand why there are so many silent letters of this kind in English. It's because other people thought they were helping, There are many other silent letters with stories that didn't make it into today's episode. The main thing to take away is that usually there's a good historical reason for a silent letter. Spelling reforms have often been proposed, and sometimes they've even been executed. For an example, read about Noah Webster in the Grammar Devotional or in episode 336 of this podcast. Even if we reformed spelling again now, we wouldn't solve the problem. In another hundred years, English pronunciations will have changed again. That segment was written by Neil Whitman, who has a PhD in linguistics and blogs at literalminded.wordpress.com. Thanks, Neil. And now, on to our tidbit about the words adult, adolescent, and adultery. Adulting was the Grammar Girl Word of the Year last year adulting, a verb that was newly invented from the noun adult. Today, we'll complete the circle and talk about how the noun adult itself came from another verb. Going by the Oxford English Dictionary and John Troutman's New College Latin and English Dictionary, our word adult comes from the Latin verb adolescere. Now, when you hear that, you might be thinking, hey, that sounds more like the word adolescent than the word adult. Well, you're right. Adolescent and adult both come from that same verb. Its Latin meaning is to grow up. The noun and adjective adolescent come from the present participle adolescens, which in English would be the ing form of the verb, growing up. But where did that e-s-c-e suffix disappear to in the word adult? That has to do with another Latin verb the one that adolescere was derived from. That verb is adelire, which also means to grow up. Our word adult comes from adultum, the past participle of adelire. In other words, adult means grown-up in Latin. So if you think calling adults grown-ups sounds childish, take note. That's what Latin speakers did too. So if I just got through saying that our word adult came from the Latin adulere, why did I say earlier that it and adolescent both came from the Latin adolescere? The verb adolescere is what's known as an incoitive or inceptive verb. The ESCE suffix turns the meaning from just grow up to begin to grow up which is what adolescents are doing, at least some of them. But Latin speakers didn't bother creating a new past participle for adolescere, so they just kept using adultum, the past participle from the verb adolire. However, the funniest thing about the etymology of adolescent is that there's actually another verb in Latin, a homonym for adolescere, which means to begin to smell bad. So, although I haven't found this etymology in the dictionaries, you could argue that the word adolescent is derived from a word that meant beginning to smell bad, which, you know, could seem appropriate. Finally, while we're on the subject of suffixes and the word adult, it's ironic that while adult and adolescent do come from the same root, adult and adultery don't. Although they both contain the Latin prefix ad, ad, The word adultery ultimately traces back to the Latin alter, meaning other. That segment was also written by Neil Whitman. Be sure to check out his blog at literalminded.wordpress.com, and you can also find him on Twitter as at LiteralMinded. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find the articles that go with each podcast segment at quickanddirtytips.com along with hundreds of other language articles and the articles that go with all the other Quick and Dirty Tips podcasts, such as the Nutrition Diva and the Get It Done Guy. That's all. Thanks for listening.